Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 274. And today, the howls on the wind get closer. And we uh, are coming closer to having the discussion that I know I've been waiting for, and I think some of you have been waiting for too, which is the big question, what precisely is going to attack them on this hilltop? Um, this is one of the fun mysteries of the Fellowship of the Ring, I think. But um, uh, keep in mind now, we're going to have to be responsible in trying to discuss this uh, because uh, we, we want to be careful not to get ahead of our data, right? So there's going to be several passages worth of data that we're going to need to look at before we can really draw conclusions about this. Um, but it will be fun to notice what we notice along the way as we begin our data collection process. Um, however, <clears throat> before we get to the appearances of the at least vaguely lupine forms um, who will be attacking them on the hill, we get this brief aside between Pippin and Sam, which is what we're going to begin with here today. But before we even get to that, um, I wanted to do uh, one quick announcement, two, two quick announcements. First off, uh, remember that we are coming up to uh, Cascade Moot, our first, um, our first regional moot of the season. So we're going to be in Portland. I'm going to be in Portland, Oregon, uh, on the 24th, 23rd. I'm forgetting the number 23rd, I think, whichever one is the Saturday, um, coming up soon. Um, uh, so in just a couple of weeks, I'll be in Portland, Oregon, our very first moot ever in the Pacific Northwest. Really excited uh, to get up there and to get to connect with a new group of people. Hope to get to see uh, some of you guys there. Um, and uh, that'll be a lot of fun. So um, we're going to be uh, there's st there's still plenty of time. Uh, for people to you can still uh, sign up to come in person if you uh, have a chance to. If you cannot do that, uh, then you can still join us remotely. So I would encourage you um, to uh, uh, to look into that as well. You can join us remotely and uh, be a part of the discussions. Um, I would also emphasize um, some, some people um, often ask this question. If you sign up to attend remotely, you do get access to recordings uh, of the sessions. So, um, you know, we just had somebody who was asking this question saying, OK, well, I can't. Unfortunately, I can't attend in person. And unfortunately, I can't attend remotely either. But can I still sign up, uh, you know, and then get access to them after the fact? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can. Um, uh, so anyway, so that's going to be that's going to be really cool. Can't wait for Cascade Moot. Going to be so much fun. My first trip. I've never been to the Pacific Northwest at all. Uh, so that's going to be that's going to be really, really cool. And yes, if you're attending live, you get access to the recordings as well. That's absolutely that is absolutely correct. Um, yeah, good. Um, uh, Goob Jones. Well, um, hey, there are many upsides to living in West Virginia. Um, I grew up in West Virginia, um, but uh, we'll probably never do like Mountaineer Moot. Uh, probably not. But we do make it to Ohio, um, and um, uh, and that's uh, that's reasonably close. Um, but um, yeah, JJ, that's a really interesting question. When will um, when will lifetime Moot memberships be available? Yeah, I, I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of I don't know about lifetime, but I'm thinking about something along those lines. Um, we'll see. Um, we'll see. Uh, uh, we'll see what we'll see what happens. We're we're 
it's uh, you know been a fairly recent thing. You know, as uh, just in the last few years, our uh, regional moots have really begun expanding again. That we've begun kind of thinking in those directions. Um, so we'll see. We'll 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 figure it out. Um, hey, Cunctator, Cincinnati was a we, we did Buckeye moot in Cincinnati, and we would love to do that again. So, um, yeah. Definitely, definitely something to look into. That was a really fun, a really fun location. In fact, if we can make it back to Cincinnati, I think I might even be able to score us a, uh, a special guest there. That would be fun. Um, <clears throat> I know somebody who lives nearby. Anyhow, um, so um, let's, uh, yeah, we'll look into that. Anyhow, excited to get back into our regional moots this fall. Of course, we've got a whole bunch uh, coming up, October, November, December. Uh, as well, many more that are coming in. As Dizzy, of course, is uh, reminding us, Osmoot 2024. There it is, January 26th to 28th. Our second in uh, our second um, uh, Southern Hemisphere moot there. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Vardendale, um Yeah. So um, uh, my my. My children have been lobbying for us to have a vermouth uh, for a very, very long time. But um, we um, we haven't uh, since we live in New Hampshire. We're kind of based in New Hampshire, and a New England moot tends, therefore, to be in New Hampshire. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Um, in any case, um, last announcement before we go back to Pippin and Sam, or go to Pippin and Sam for the first time. Um, the um, uh, I just wanted to remind folks, this very month as is here in September 2023, um, we are having our final major evaluation for our accreditation process. This is a really big deal for us. It's a process that's been uh, in in active progression uh, for five years now um, and, of course, <clears throat> been preparing for it for more than 10 years. Um, this is a this is a huge deal that's uh, uh, coming up very, very soon. Um, and we need help. Um, this is, uh, you know, I don't usually uh, do this, but uh, we, I am making a special fundraising pitch. Uh, anybody who can help to contribute uh, to help us cover the costs, the costs of accreditation are really, really expensive um, uh, beyond our regular budget. So, yeah, if you go to signumuniversity.org slash credential, um, you can make a, a special donation to help support that. By the way, um, I know that if you, um, you may run into trouble with that form, if you are um, uh, not in America. Uh, so if you're not in America and would like to make a donation, uh, you can go to our regular donate page, um, signumuniversity.org slash donate, and we will we will get that too. Um, really appreciate that. So uh, many thanks. Um, many thanks to everybody uh, who has already helped us out. We've already raised uh, over $10,000 um, towards our $25,000 goal. Trying to raise our $25,000 uh, goal by about Hobbit Day or so would be really handy. Um, so if we could, um, uh, if any help that you guys can give towards that. Um, this is going to be a major milestone for Signum. Now, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, this is just the evaluation that's happening this month. We don't know what's going to happen in that evaluation. It may may still be, there, there, there may well be more process after this. We will see what happens. Um, you know, so we uh, can't make any promises about the actual results, but the fact that we are coming into this exciting final stage, that's, that's definitely happening. Um, so, um, 
so we will see anyway as I said I really appreciate um, the help we've gotten a lot of support from folks so far um, for which I'm really really grateful and again anything you could do to help would be just wonderful um, yes it does um, uh, anything that you give we will will definitely also count that towards the overall um, the donation perks and stuff that we normally give um, that's right yeah yeah um, Yes, Matt, I have a lot of confidence in the team that's pulling this all together, too. Um, I like our chances, but it's outside of our control. And, uh, and so we will, we will see what we can do. But whatever comes, we will, we will persevere as we have persevered for so many years before. All right. Um, let's, um, let's, let's get back to the text here. So... Um, we were just deciding that we were going to fight. Remember that they, they just, they, in a relatively efficient exchange, right? They ascertained that A, oh yeah, those are wolves after us. Uh, B, we should definitely go to Moria uh, because with, you know, packs of wolves pursuing us, we're not going to get very even to the gap of Rohan, no chance of that. So we need to get underground right away. Um, definitely the best bet for which Gandalf only a little bit said, I told you so. Um, also, we can't possibly get there before the wolves catch us uh, because it's 20 miles and uh, whether it's the genocide of crows that's going to come back and try to kill us, uh, who has only 15 miles to fly between here and there, or whether it's the wolves who run us down, we're not making it there before they catch us here this evening. Um, so, they're going to they're going to stick around, right? They're going to fight. And um, we see Aragorn suggestively um, loosening his sword in its sheath uh, and preparing for that. And then, of course, we got the exchange of uh, uh, rhyming sayings uh, there at the end that we were talking about at the end. So, in ex so after we have Boromir and... Um, in that context of Boromir and Aragorn's exchange... Right, the uh, the wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears, followed by but where the warg prowls there also, um, uh, where the warg howls there also the orc prowls, um, yeah, yeah. Jackie, it would be interesting to tally up the number of times Aragorn is described as grim, especially when handle when handling Anduril. Yeah, yeah. Looking at one thing that I would just say in general. Um, Jackie, on that note, this is one of the things that I have been most interested in, in looking at the characterization of our, you know, our, our, you know, the characters in the company as we go through, of course, as you know, I've been really enjoying, um, thinking carefully about Boromir and Boromir's contributions. I have, I've been feeling like that's been really revelatory as we've been going through and looking at that. However, um, one of the things that I find interesting and somewhat curious are Sam and Aragorn. If you look at Sam and Aragorn's contributions, they tend to be real downers. Both of them tend to be real downers. Um, Aragorn was, uh, seemed to be the one being actively discouraging before, um, even making what sound almost like snide comments in response to Gandalf here recently during this council. Um, and Sam is continually saying all of these, um, you know, sort of sort of negative, pessimistic things, right? Um, so looking at the, you know, sort of tracking the dynamics of that, um, 
Because, of course, neither one of them in the end, or let me say it positively, both of them, uh, long before the end, uh, are going, of course, to be marvelous examples of hope and perseverance. Um, so it is certainly not that the two of them are just like killjoys and negative examples. Um, so watching how Tolkien handles that, how he, um, uh, what exactly he sort of conveys uh, to us there um, through that way. Yeah, Cal Elro says, who wants to write the Sam Puddleglum Aragorn moot paper? I don't know, but it would be a pretty good moot paper, wouldn't it? Um, see, we... Though I would, I would also add, Cal, Cal Elros, um, that um, it would be, I think, a more challenging paper to write than you might think, right? Because of the risk there. The risk is, and it's, it's a frequent risk, actually, when you're comparing and contrasting Lewis and Tolkien. And that is to, uh, to lean too heavily into similarities, right? To be looking at... Um, what are the similarities and the differences between how their characters are handled by Lewis and by Tolkien in those stories and how they're, to use the word vaguely, um, negativity, right, um, is, uh, is played and the relationship that that has with their ultimate um, sort of the stubbornness of their hope. Um, but... Um, Anyway, I, I, I think that it would be a very, very interesting um, examination to do. Sounds like an excellent moot paper. I would love to hear, I would love to hear about that. Um, okay, anyway, but yeah, we'll keep an eye on that, Jackie, as we go through. Um, okay, here's the aside. I wish I had taken Elrond's advice, muttered Pippin to Sam. I'm no good after all. There is not enough of the breed of Bandabras the bull roarer in me. These howls freeze my blood. I don't ever remember feeling so wretched. My heart's right down in my toes, Mr. Pippin, said Sam. But we aren't etting yet, and there are some stout folk here with us. Whatever may be in store for old Gandalf, I'll wager it isn't a wolf's belly. Okay. Yes, Bjarna's honor, you're exactly right. Um, it does seem like this is the moment when Pippin realizes... Finally, that he's not on a Hobbit walking party, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's start with Pippin, of course, is tempting to jump right to Sam in the context of what we were just talking about, right? Because here we see Sam, who is usually quick to grumble, uh, quick to grumble, quick to complain in those asides to himself, which nevertheless get recorded, right? And therefore, um, you know, as I've said multiple times seem to me to imply that they're either they are overheard by Frodo or they are meant for Frodo's ears and Frodo's ears alone. Right. Um, but, um, but in any case, uh, let's start with Pippin, nevertheless. Um, this is a I think this is a this is a fairly significant moment for Pippin. Um, if we look carefully at what he's saying here, right? I am no good after all. 
that's a kind of a big deal. I'm no good after all. I don't ever remember feeling so wretched. Um, notice he's saying something besides, I'm very afraid. I think we're going to die. Right? Um, and Lupita, you're right. He's faced the ringwraiths, right? He's, he's, he's been face-to-face with Black Riders before. And he says, I don't remember feeling so wretched. Um, yes, obviously, he's afraid. These howls freeze my blood, right? He is, on the one hand, confessing to feeling terrified. But there's more to the context of this, right? Um, I wish I had taken Elrond's advice. I am no good after all. So remember, first of all, it's interesting that he characterizes it as advice. Um, Elrond said uh, that there were two spots left in the company and he hadn't decided... You know, he said, you know, there, there might be some of, you know, my people that I might send. Pippin is the one who then interrupts and says, but that would leave no room for us, right? Um, he was insisting that he would come with the company unless they tied him up in chains, right? If they didn't incarcerate him, he would follow the company no matter what happened. Um, so his insistence on coming was extremely forceful, right? Um, the other moment, of course, that Pippin isn't explicitly alluding to here, right? But which I think is, is clearly relevant is you remember the, the crack that Pippin makes when he says that, you know, he should come because, you know, Frodo will need someone with intelligence in the party, right? That little piece of hobbitry on on Pippin's part. Um, so he was confidently asserting with comedy, right? So, I mean, again, it's, it's not... I, I don't think it is necessarily... I, I don't think it would be true to say... I don't think it would be fair to Pippin to say that he was completely delusional, right? That Pippin really felt that he was going to be the, you know, the difference maker, right? That he was going to be the, uh, the, the, you know, that he was some kind of stupendous resource, right? For the company that they, they, they'd be lost without him. I don't, I don't think he, he really believed that, right? Um, and, um, but nevertheless, that was kind of the way he talked, right? That was the way that he expressed his confident choice to come along with the company. Um, and uh, so, yeah, Matt, I am. Um, I hear you. So Matt says, I would I would argue that it's it's been real for Pippin for some time. He has faced down horrors that would freeze most men's blood. He is having the same moment of looking at his family's history that Aragorn uh, will have at the Argonoth. Can I live up to my family's expectations? Boromir will face the same thing. 
Yeah, Matt, I agree. I agree in the sense that I do think this is why I, I'm emphasizing that I think for Pippin, it's about much more than just um, it, it's about much more than just fear. It's not just I'm afraid that I might die. Um, they've been there, right? I, you know, on the mountain with the Black Riders, right in the Dell. Um, there've been a bunch of times that he. Um, uh, there have been a bunch of times that he has faced fearful things, right? I, I don't. Th- I think it's more than that. Again, but I want to go back to that choice where he. Context, he starts contextualizing this. I wish I had taken Elrond's advice. Right. Elrond's heart was against their going, Merry and Pippin, and especially Pippin. Um, Gandalf, when Gandalf spoke up for them, you'll remember that Gandalf's um, <laughs> Gandalf's endorsement was a little bit backhanded. Right? Um... I think we should uh, trust rather in their friendship than in great wisdom. Um, Gandalf was all about like, oh, this seems like a bad idea. Let's do it then, right? <laughs> but you see, like, what, um, what, you know, two more useless hobbits in the company is what the enemy will least expect. Um, anyway, what is... What's the important factor for Gandalf there? The important factor is their friendship. Their choice. Think to what a big deal that was throughout the council, right? Pippin's expression, right, about like having to be... He convinces Elrond, Gandalf first, Elrond second, to let him come on the quest because he says that his will is so set on helping Frodo that he would have to be, you know, locked in irons uh, in order to prevent him coming. That is an expression of how firmly his will was set on coming. And if that is their choice, Gandalf seems to take that as um, uh, as sufficient, right? And also, when saying their friendship... Gandalf is, I think, obliquely pointing towards Frodo, right? Um, having Merry and Pippinola, having two of his friends along here to support him will probably be really good for, for Frodo's morale. And that would probably be more valuable than having... I know it's really hard to maintain the argument. It would be better than having Glorfindel along, right? But that's essentially what Gandalf says, Right. Um, yes, we could have somebody who's stronger, somebody who would increase our odds of success seen from a purely, you know, objective point of view. But none of that's what really matters. What really matters is the will of the ring bearer matters a great deal. Right. So that seems to be that's that's what I hear in Gandalf's statement about their friendship. Right. But but back to Pippin and Pippin's point of view. Elrond says that he had thought to send them, Merry and Pippin, back to the Shire, right? That there was there were things they could do there. Um, uh, that there would be trouble back in the Shire that they could help with. 
And of course, we will see eventually that uh, Elrond was quite right about this. Um, Merry and Pippin might have been able to help had they been back in the Shire. Um, possibly. Maybe not, but possibly they would. Um, Pippin characterized this as Elrond's advice. As if Elrond had advised him not to come, but he had insisted on coming. In that context, he says, I wish I had taken Elrond's advice. I am no good after all. And again, remember, Elrond's advice was, he didn't frame it as advice, right? But at the time, um, but thinking of it in terms of advice, if, if we understand it as advice, the advice Elrond was giving was, I advise you, Pippin and Mary, to return to the Shire because there is something there. I, I you know, I, I, I believe, I foresee that there is something there that you guys could, there's a role there that you guys could play. And so that seems to be the context here, because Pippin doesn't say, I wish I had taken Elrond's advice. Um, here, I'm just, I'm going to die, right? I'm going to get et up by wolves. That's not what he says. What he's concerned about is that here, he's no good after all. His concern is not, I mean, again, I'm not saying he's not afraid for his life. He obviously is. Um, but that's not what he's voicing here. Merely fear for his life. What he's voicing is that he oughtn't to have come, that he's no use, that there's no point in him being here. Um, that his, you know, from his first half-joking comments about their needing to have intelligence in the party and all that sort of thing, right? Um, uh, he um, He's had this sort of bravado about, like, obviously I should come, right? Obviously it's, it's a, you know... When Mary and Pippin step forward to, you know, sort of claim their spots in the company, there's this sense of um, it's their right, right? Like they're they they set out with Frodo and they mean to finish the job, right? They had no idea what it was really that they were signing up for. Um, they were signing up to get him to Rivendell. They had remember they made a song about that and everything to Rivendell where elves yet dwell in caves beneath the mist beneath the misty fell right i mean that's that's um uh that's that's what they're that's what they're focused on getting him to Rivendell that's what they think the adventure is they want to go on right they see this as a logical continuation but but now he now he questions it my coming along was pointless i'm no good after all and I think that's a, this tells me something about Pippin. Again, he's not just saying, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Right? This is him saying, okay, you know, on second thought, we're about to be assaulted by giant wolves. And, you know, in retrospect, maybe instead of having me having a, oh, I don't know, another warrior um, might have been a better idea. Right? I mean, this, I'm kind of a, a drag on this, on this party, right? Um, I'm no good after all. There's no point to me. I shouldn't be here. I was wrong. I wish I had taken Elrond's advice. Elrond tried to tell me of a role that I could play and a place where I might be needed, where I could do some good. Here, 
I'm no good, after all. There is not enough of the breed of Bandobras the Bull Roarer in me. Um, so, there's a sort of a particular irony here, right? It is not merely that he thinks that, like, well, pretty pointless to have a hobbit when there are big wolves to fight. He's a took, right? And he remembers his family history, right? The family history of Bandobras Took, the bull roarer, um, who fought the goblins and probably wolves, right? So there have been hobbit warriors who have won battles and been effective in circumstances kind of like this, right? Um, but, um, but it's not him. He's not that. He can't live up to that. Um, I'm no good after all. Um, I'm not, I'm not Bandobras, the bull roarer. I am not my great ancestor. I can't follow in those footsteps. I'm just terrified. These howls freeze my blood. I don't ever remember feeling so wretched. Not terrified again, right? He feels wretched. He feels miserable. In part, yes, certainly, because of the fear, right? But it's more than that. He's useless. He feels miserable. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, yes, JJ, you're remembering ahead to other passages where this is going to be coming up again. This question of what what's the point? What contribution can I make here? Right? Um, so far, this hasn't come up too much. Right? That is to say, so far they've just been on a journey. Um, Gandalf and Aragorn have been leading them as they've done their cross-country traveling. Um, but there hasn't been much for anybody like to do yet, exactly. So this hasn't really kind of reached the point. Um, the uh, escape from Karathras was the first time that some people in the party had to make contributions, right? So we had Boromir and Aragorn digging them out of the snow. We had Legolas running around on top of the snow to scout. We had Gandalf lighting the fire for them, right? So um, we've had contributions now from everyone except for Gimli and the Hobbits. Uh, Gimli's day looks like it's going to come, however, right? Gandalf just implied that it would be good to have a dwarf with them in the Hall of the Dwarves. Perhaps Gimli's uh, head won't be as confused and all that, so okay. Um... Now, at Frodo, everyone knows that Frodo is useful. He's got a job. Um, what's the job of the rest of them? Right? It's, be it's, it's be sort of beginning to come to the point. And now, now it's acute. Now it's acute. There's, what are they going to do? How can they contribute? And now he's looking around and saying, yeah, yeah, um, Elrond was right and I was wrong. I thought I should come on this quest. I wanted to come on this quest. I didn't want to leave Frodo. I didn't want to be left out. Right? Um... But now that we're here, I'm like, yeah, actually, it's not just that I would be safer if I'd stayed home. It's that this whole enterprise would be in better hands if, oh, I don't know, Glorfindel were here instead of me. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's um, um, Ambrosius exactly. Um, 
feeling like he's let the fellowship down um, by coming instead of someone more capable. Yeah, absolutely. And that's connected with the, you know, it, again, it's, it's not that his fear is irrelevant here, but it, it's compounded by the fear. That feeling is compounded by the fear, but, um, but there it is. Um, now, Maureen, I, I do acknowledge you are completely right that Pippin is the perfect choice for a fool's quest. Um, so uh, maybe there you go. That's his contribution, right? To make it to make it more foolish. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, wretched at his sudden feeling of uselessness, Doctor Ben. We are at least wretched at his um, sort of the sudden recognition, right, of um, of his uselessness. That sentence he just said. I mean, if you've ever been in a place, which I bet most of us have, right, been in a place where that thought, I am no good after, I am no good, I am useless. Um, it would be better for everyone if if, I, if someone else were here instead of me, right? I'm doing harm instead of help. Uh, that's a wretched, wretched feeling. And that's the primary feeling that he's, again, the, the fear is there, but I don't think um, it is the, um, it is the, the, the primary thing there. Um, yeah. Ah, Faramirian, yes, you are you are remembering ahead too. Um yep, yep. There this will come up. This will come up uh this will come up again. And yes, Everett, I don't think his only re- uh his only regret is that he will probably never go on to invent the game of golf. Uh yes, though that's in his family history too. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Yep, yep. Um, okay. Um, that's really interesting, Matt. Matt says it's also worth noting that the instances where Pippin feels wretched um, are when the Fellowship is under the effect of an assault on their will. Um, he may be our bellwether for such moments in a way similar to uh, how we have to watch out for ring-induced monologues. Yeah. Um, yeah, I... Um, it is possible that... Um, it is possible that there is something more than merely the circumstances. Like, is there, is there some sort of spiritual component of the assault? Like there explicitly is with the ringwraiths, right? And Matt's right. Um, he's going to be feeling similar thoughts about his own uselessness at a time when we know that Saruman's will is seeking to oppress them and encourage the orcs, right? Um, uh, so... Um, yes, yes. Um, it's something, it definitely is something to, to think about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yes, yes. Um, so we, we will, we will see if Pippin's Really, all of the hobbits' reactions may be kind of indicators in that way. Um, 
I don't ever remember feeling so wretched. Um, now again, let's let's make a comparison with a time when Pippin was uh, both A, surely just as frightened, and B, surely just as useless, right? And that's in the Dell at Weathertop. Uh, he uh, made no contribution there. Um, and he um, was surely had to have been, you'd have to think, as terrified as he is right now. <laughs> Back to Weathertop. Exactly. Um, um, and yet, there's no evidence of him or Mary or any of them feeling this this kind of wretchedness, uh, having these kinds of thoughts, right? Um, he was in the majority then, Aranas. And another thing is that he was... Um, he wasn't taking up a spot. He didn't know what he was doing, for one thing, right? I mean, they, the four of them, were on a journey together. They were trying to get to Rivendell. No, he was not, like, being an active help towards They wasn't really doing anything productive to assist in that endeavor at that point. But, um, but the context is, was different, right? This was just, I'm going with Frodo while we, and we're trying to get to Rivendell. Um, they were all being helped by Aragorn, right, at that point. Um, but, um, but the things that were happening them to them on the road between the Shire and Rivendell are in a very different context from we are forming up a company to undertake this quest which in which, you know, on which rests the hope of the world, right? There are only a certain number of tickets to this particular show, right? And Pippin says, I claim one of them, right? That, it, it, it puts it, I, I mean, I think it puts it in a very different, in a very different light, right? He wasn't one of the chosen companions assigned to help accompany the ring on its journey, as, you know, the others mostly were, right? Um, so anyway, I do think, I do think that it's, um, um, it's different. And it's certainly true, Bricktails, that a trip to Rivendell and a trip to Mordor are two very, very different trips. They absolutely are. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's look at Sam's response here. My heart's right down in my toes, Mr. Pippin, said Sam. Sam's first response is to acknowledge that he feels similarly. Um, yes, Bjorning, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, that Pippin wasn't chosen, but he volunteers. And this is volunteer, he insists, right? He elbows his way in to the company, kind of presumptuously, right? And, and that it probably adds to his self-recrimination. I agree. He was so optimistic and sure of himself, and it's turning to ashes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. Um, anyway, so um, Sam's first comment is to express sympathy with Pippin. My heart's right down in my toes. Sam confesses he feels similarly. Notice the expression that his heart is in his toes, Right. Um, 
it's interestingly um, ambivalent, right? Is he speaking of his own fear? Is he speaking, I mean, does he feel wretched? Does he also feel that he's no good after all? Um, possibly. We don't see him explicitly expressing that here, but again, I think that his, um, the very ambiguity of his statement is sort of helpful here, right? It's like, I acknowledge that you feel really bad right now. I feel really bad too. My heart is is in my toes. So the, 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 the expression, what does that mean exactly? That his heart is right down in his toes, right? When your heart is... When your heart is high, right? Um, this is uh, this seems to me to be a description of that wonderful uh, a modern English idiom designed to get at the thing that is so often conveyed by that word, that old English word that Tolkien so loved to talk about, the word mode, right? Um, uh, which from which the modern word mood derives, but of course the word mode uh, in Old English and in the context of Anglo-Saxon culture um, was much, meant much more than just, than just mood. Of course, um, if you've read um, Tolkien's Finn and Hengist, you uh, have heard Tolkien speak at length about uh, the word mode and it's, uh, and, and in particular, um, a one, particular use of it, overmode, um, in relation to the Battle of Malton. But, um, but in any case, uh, that's, I, that seems to me what Pippin is describing. Like, this is what his, his mode is low. He is not in high mode. He is in low mode, right? His mode is low. His mind, his mood, his, um, uh, you know, everything about, it is definitely an, an up is good metaphor, Bjornasoner, you're you're completely right. Um, uh, when your heart is down in your toes, it's it's a statement about your optimism, your feeling of confidence. Um, uh, it's the opposite of being in high spirits, right? Uh, yes, my omdir is in the ditch, Aspen. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, Lupita. It's 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 interesting to think about these idioms, isn't it? Lupita is uh, saying, as a native Spanish speaker, she gets my heart is in my toes, though she is, doesn't really understand what English speakers mean when they talk about their heart being on their sleeves. I'm not going to pretend that isn't weird because I've always thought that was a weird metaphor. But um, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It does mean for all to see, Jackie. But like, why sleeves? Like, why are sleeves specially visible? Anyway, sorry. Do not want to get just <laughs> too distracted there? Um, but um, um. Anyway, so by saying this generally, my heart's down in my toes, my spirits are very, very low. He is saying that he feels, he feels Pippin, right? Um, I, my emotions are in a similar state to yours, right? But we aren't Etten yet. 
and there are some stout folk with us. Um, <laughs> Silk Westcott, I love that. Uh, Silk Westcott says, Sam validates Pippin's statements, uh, then rationalizes non-emotionally and engages Pippin's humor. Uh, Sam could easily work a counseling hotline. <laughs> yes, yes, he really could. He really could. Um, um, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> Bill Huggins says, My Omdeer is in the Ditch is the title of a Middle Earth country song. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. My hearts are down on my toes, but we aren't etting yet. Um, and there are some stout folk here with us. On the one hand, that addresses the fear for his life, right? Um, don't give up, Mr. Pippin. Right? Don't give up. We aren't at yet. Um, uh, the uh, the question of whether or not um, we shall soon be eaten by wolves, um, you know, that's a it's a very it's a very real consideration at this point, um, but. It hasn't happened yet, and there are some stout folk here with us. Um, a question I have about this sentence. Do you think he's missing the point, Sam? Um, it seems to me that Sam is either missing the point, or he's making a, a movement here um, that is... very profound. Um, Pippin's feeling wretched, not just because he's afraid he's going to die, but because he feels useless. Um, and that he's letting everybody down because he's not the bull roarer. And if there were somebody more competent in this company in his place, there might be a decreased chance of everybody else dying too. Right. Sam's response to that is to say, there are some stout folk here with us. Um, we can rely on the strength of others. That's okay. We can rely on the strength of others. Again, you see what I mean? Either he's missing the point. Um, like Pippin might possibly say in response, well, yeah, of course there are, right? And if there were somebody else here instead of me, there'd be an, yet another stout folk here, right? Um... And then, you know, the uh, the overall stoutness of the company, the stoutness index would be higher, right, if there were somebody um, besides me that was here. But Sam, um, Sam it sort of it doesn't address that, right? Instead, notice what he's modeling for Pippin. Sam is, like, shamelessly relying upon the stout folk to protect them. Right? He is not... Pippin, his reference to Bandober's The Bull Roarer shows that he feels some, like, expectation upon himself. Right? Um, he should be... If he were any good, Pippin, he would step up, like, the bull roarer did and he would show himself a warrior and he'd give these wolves what for right sam 
doesn't think isn't thinking that way at all, apparently. He says, there are some stout folk here with us. Don't worry. We can be protected. I'm my I'm not feeling real confident. My heart's my spirits are low, my heart's in my toes. Um but but it's but I'm but I'm not gonna worry. I'm still gonna have confidence. Um I'm not gonna despair because I'm gonna rely on the on the stout folk. Right. Um yeah, yeah. Um I agree, Bob, that Sam wouldn't expect to be on the same tier as the bull roarer. Yes. Um but Bjorning, yeah, I agree. Sam Sam is happy to rely on the fellowship. It's not his job, right? And this is Sam or Pippin rather. Pippin is kind of confronting a truth here. His cockiness and confidence that he was showing from the beginning. Right. Um, which even at times makes him look uh, foolish or oblivious. Right. Um, is here receiving a major check. One of the first that we've seen anyway. Right. Um, and Pippin's response or sorry, Sam's response, is basically, um, yeah, here's a, here's a different way for you to look at it. Pippin is now kind of coming rather painfully to something that's more like Sam's worldview. Sphinx, I, I, I do think, I do think it has something to do with um, Sam's sort of perspective on the world contrasted with Pippin. Um, it's not that Sam is never going to have concerns about being useless, but he doesn't feel it here, right? Um, Sam is more as a poor blue-collar servant-class hobbit. Sam is more used to relying on others than Pippin is. And he models that here. We're in good hands. We have to... Uh, all we can do is trust. Trust in the company. Trust in the rest of the company. Trust, Estelle, is in one sense what Sam's crisis is earlier on. Um, he believed it was his... He believed that he should come. Gandalf believed that he should come. Right? Gandalf's own um, analysis of the situation was that it would be good to rely upon their friendship. That they did have something to contribute. Um, Pippin is losing faith in that idea here and feeling wretched. And Sam says, in essence, there are things that he can do. He, why did he volunteer to come? Not because he thought he had resources that the company had, would do well to avail itself of. Right. 
but because he had a responsibility. It was his job. It's his job to come with Frodo and help him. He doesn't know how exactly, right? But he's going to come do his job. And yet, Belongsmont, we don't know what Pippin... Pippin doesn't know what his job is, right? This is the first time this has been explicitly raised. Well, I mean, you could say it was raised during the debate that Pippin's alluding to, right? Um, Elrond and Gandalf's dispute, which Gandalf will uh, allude to with smugness several times, right, in the future narrative. Um, Gandalf is confident when he supports them that their coming will be good, that it will be good to have been. We don't yet know why it will be good for them to come. And right now, Pippin doesn't see it. Pippin feels the opposite of that. Um, yeah, Gilgo Lady, that's exactly it. Gandalf didn't want Pippin for strength of arms, but strength of friendship. Um, and uh, Pippin is comparing himself to warriors, so he's missing his role that Gandalf has expressed. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, yes. Yes. Um, he needs to adjust his understanding, and that's what Sam is giving him. Sam is Sam is modeling for him a uh, a new and frankly more um, more humble way of looking at himself and his role than Pippin um, than Pippin's own sort of natural inclination is right. Yes, Silk Westcott says Mary doesn't have this crisis until Dunharrow. Yes, he is going to have a similar one there uh, in uh, in in Dunharrow. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yes, Matt, you were right. Matt says there's actually a lot more of this in this book than I think I had realized. Everyone is thinking of the stories that really matter, as Sam will say, and wonder if they are worthy. Think, for example, of Theoden's death speech that he will not go to his father's. Ashamed that he had not lived up to their history. Uh, Faramir worries about his father. Yes, yes. Um, um, you know, honor and shame are a big deal, right? For all of them, I think. Um, and uh, and I think, yeah, Denethor is going to as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, obviously, this is not an issue that's going to be addressed here. But it's really important for us to notice this happening, right? It's really important for us to notice um, Pippin having this crisis here. What, what is the point of me? Why am I here? What good can I possibly do? And the good that he feels that he wants to do, the good that he feels that he should do, and that there even is precedent within his own family history with the bull roarer to believe that he should do it that you know that that there's a there is a role model in his own family line that he's falling short of right it's not just some kind of absurdity right there's precedent for it and so he has no excuse and yet and he feels shame um sam shows there's a different way to look at things and i do think that um the contrast um, someone, uh, sorry, I forgot uh, what it was that um, um, 
the the um, one of you was bringing up how it's it's Pippin and Sam having this conversation. Like Pippin mutters this to Sam, like he he for whatever reason uh, chooses Sam rather than Mary or Frodo to make this comment to, right? Um, and I think that that's, um, I think that's really interesting, right? I think that that is important, this connection between Sam and Pippin. We haven't had much, honestly, connection between Pippin and Sam. Um, the only, some of the only times I can remember them interacting, I, one of the biggest interactions I can remember between the two of them is, uh, remember when Pippin, um, uh, wakes Sam up asking if he'd gotten the bathwater hot yet, right? And then, uh, you know, Frodo pays him out by dumping him out of his blankets, right? Um, defending Sam, right? Yeah, exactly. Cal, Cal Elros was just remembering that, too. That Pippin's come a long way from telling Sam to make him breakfast. And I think Pippin's teasing Sam there, right? But still, like, you can see sort of the, um, um, the dynamics. And Bjorning, I do think there is a certain amount of shame um, I think it's perhaps an expression of his shame. It would be even harder for him to say this to Mary or to Frodo, I think. Um, uh, yeah, I think... Um, and this strikes me as perhaps one of the reasons... One of the consequences, rather, I was just talking before at the start about how Sam's negativity, right? How Sam's always complaining. Sam was so frequently grumbling. Um, that might be part of why Pippin feels confident saying these things to Sam, right? Um, Sam will understand how he feels, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, he can't talk this way to one of the heroes, obviously, you know, like Aragorn. Um, but, um, but again, even Mary and Pippin, even his, or, or Mary and Frodo, even, even his peers, um, there's some reluctance, but, but is it possible that, you know, he's heard Sam grumble, he's heard Sam's complaints. Um, Sam will understand, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I think that's important. And I don't think that Sam is trying to, like, teach him a lesson. Exactly. Sam is sharing, I have similar feelings... And here's how I deal with those feelings. I am reassuring myself by remembering all the strong people that I can stand behind, right? Um, we have a, you know, we have a company here, which includes uh, several pretty impressive people. Like, not just the obvious warriors like Aragorn and you know, and Boromir and probably Gimli as well, and who knows what Legos can do. Um, probably, you know, shield surf or something. Um, but then there's Gandalf, who's on a kind of whole different level. 
right? So, you know, we've got some reasons. I, I you know, my heart is in my toes, but I have reasons to feel, to feel, um, to feel confident. Um, yeah. Um, now. Yeah, Aspen, thanks for bringing that up. Why did he not recall the wolves in The Hobbit and compare himself to the dwarves in Bilbo? Why the bull roarer? Well, I think that Pippin... Um, that's a segue to the last thing I wanted to talk about tonight, Aspen. And that is... Um, the family histories. Because there are two different family histories that we get here, right? Um, on the one hand, um, we get the memory of Bandobras the bull roarer by Pippin, right? That's the model that he is thinking of. Yes, Kersimus, just as you say, Pippin thinks of it, you know, he thought himself a Tookish hero. Um, he was going to be a protagonist in one of those stories that Bilbo, that young, younger Bilbo has heard at the beginning of The Hobbit, right? Um, about young Tooks who have gone off on mad adventures with Gandalf. Um, Pippin sees himself as the protagonist of one of those stories, right? A very Tookish hero. Pippin is 100% Took and proud of it, right? Um, what does Sam recall? Sam recalls Bilbo's story, right? Sam recalls The Hobbit, which is part of their collective family history. Uh, remember, that was Frodo's expression when they found the trolls, right? Um, we're forgetting our family history, he says. Now, technically, of course, he's the only one whose family was technically involved, though they're all kind of connected to Bilbo. Um, but there's, a, there's clearly a larger sense in which um, Bilbo's adventures are the collective family history of all of them, right? And it's clearly true for Sam as well. Um, Sam identifies. Sam is remembering the story of the Hobbit, which included Gandalf being surrounded by wolves and surviving. Right? Um, and this is... This is a, a fascinating thing. Um, ooh, yeah, Bob, let me come right back to that in a second. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that in just a minute. But first of all, it's a fascinating remembrance by Sam because he says, whatever may be in store for old Gandalf, I'll wager it is in a wolf's belly. On the one hand, there's some real irony to that statement, right? I've often quoted, I've often cited that instance, that moment in The Hobbit, as one of the clearest illustrations of how Tolkien's concept of Gandalf and of wizards changes between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, right? When Gandalf is surrounded by wolves and they climb up the trees, he's not helpless, right? He does the burning pine cone thing, um, and that helps against the wolves. Um, but Gandalf is going to die. The eagles rescue them. Um, Gandalf, of course, does not summon them. Um, he has nothing to do with it, 
right? That this is the thing. Um, there are many reasons to dislike the reuse of the moth um, in uh, uh, in the Hobbit films. And I heard lots of people um, appropriately complaining about that ridiculous moment uh, of the many ridiculous moments uh, in the Hobbit film films. However, I heard too few people complaining about what seemed to me the biggest deal there. The biggest deal is that this was not Gandalf's plan, right? The rescue by the eagles is not Gandalf saves the day again. It's Gandalf is saved out of nowhere and unexpectedly. Um, this is a stroke of good fortune. It is a complete catastrophe that they are rescued by the eagles at that point. Now, Gandalf is involved, right? It's because of his friendship with the Lord of the Eagles that he, you know, when the eagle swoops down and rescues him, and then he convinces them to go back and rescue the other dwarves and stuff. Gandalf's instrumental in making it work, right? Um, but, um, but it is very much not a Gandalf stratagem that brings the eagles. So the idea that the eagles were summoned by Gandalf, I thought, was... Um, the strangest and most violent adaptation decision that they made in that entire sequence um, uh, right there. But in any case, the point is, in The Hobbit, Gandalf's about to die. The narrator tells us that Gandalf is about to die. He's going to fling himself down off the tree, and he's probably going to take out a bunch of them when he falls. Um, But it was going to be the end of him. Um... That Tolkien is himself self-conscious of the fact that he has changed his concept of Gandalf and of wizards um, is, I think, expressed in this paragraph. By recalling that moment, which this does, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's hard to avoid that connection here. Um, Gandalf would have ended up in a wolf's belly in The Hobbit had they not been unexpectedly, fortuitously rescued by eagles. You catastrophically rescued by eagles. Gandalf would have ended up in a wolf's belly. And here's Sam saying, whatever may be in store for old Gandalf, I'll wager it isn't a wolf's belly. Um, This suggests, so outside the world of the story, this sort of shows us Tolkien is kind of proclaiming here, right? Um, this Gandalf ain't that Gandalf anymore, right? Inside the story, it suggests that Sam has processed that story. Sam's read it. Sam knows that Gandalf almost ended in a wolf's belly in that incident, right? But he didn't. He didn't end up in a wolf's belly. And Sam knows that too. And Sam, Sam's read the whole book, The Hobbit, right? Sam has seen, I think, the moral of the story that Bilbo doesn't get until the closing pages. Yeah, Bjorning, I do think that Sam has pro- Sam processed the catastrophe. And what it means. That's exactly what I think. 
he's looking back and saying, there was that moment. Remember that moment when Gandalf was surrounded by wolves and it looked like he was going to die there? But he didn't die, did he? Right? Um, whatever may be in store for old Gandalf. Whatever may be in store for. Whatever future lies ahead of Gandalf. Whatever his fate, his destiny. Whatever Providence has determined will be the ultimate fate of Gandalf. I'll wager it isn't in a wolf's belly. That proved to be the case last time, didn't it? It turned out that Providence had a different plan. And I'll wager Providence has a different plan again. Right? Now, Bob, back to the point that you made. Is he also um, alluding to Aragorn's prophecy? I think he might be. I hadn't ever actually made that connection before. I think I was always too distracted by the Hobbit connection, but I think you're right. They all just heard Aragorn say, if you enter, right, if you pass the gates of Moria, beware. Um, that he's concerned for Gandalf, right? It's not for us or for the ring, but for you, right? If you pass the gates of Moria, beware. Um, Sam's saying something might be in store for old Gandalf, right? Um, there may be an end. Gandalf might die. Sam's... When Gandalf dies, there will be shock and grief, but it's not going to be the kind of shock and grief that comes when something takes you completely out of like it's not going to be clearly for Sam the kind of shock of it never even occurred to me that Gandalf could ever possibly die right um he's thinking about it right here i mean Gandalf's death is what he's referring to when he talks about something being in store for Gandalf right um, whatever may be in store for old Gandalf, I'll wager it isn't a wolf's belly. If old Gandalf is going to get it, <laughs> right? Um, it's not, it's not going to be here. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily, I, Avalard, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he's assuming Gandalf's mortality. That is, that Sam is now convinced like, oh man, Gandalf's done for, <laughs> right? That he's like, he's already saying his goodbyes to Gandalf. It's just a question of when, right? No, no, that would be too far. It's, 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 it's nothing like as strong as that, I think. Um, oh, his killability? Yeah, sure. That I think is, well, that I think seemed well, let me put it another way, Abelard. The narrator of The Hobbit certainly thinks though. Right? Um, and therefore, Sam would think so, right? Right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, it is a very nonchalant way of acknowledging the prophecy. Um, <laughs> there's also a kind of, there's a kind of perverse reassurance from the prophecy, right? It's not that he's convinced, oh man, Gandalf is, is done for. Right? Again, it's not that. 
But remember how I said there's a kind of perverse reassurance that Gandalf's prophecy might provide to Gandalf? Sorry, that Aragorn's prophecy might provide to Gandalf? Um, namely, right, it's not for us others or for the ring, but for you that I am thinking. So bad news is you're very likely to die, but the good news is the ring and the rest of us will probably survive, right? Um, similarly, <laughs> there's a kind of perverse reassurance for Sam in Aragorn's words, if you pass the gates of Moria, beware. Well, he's still not going to pass the gates of Moria until tomorrow at the earliest, so is he going to die tonight? Don't think so, right? <laughs> Pretty sure he's safe tonight, right? Um, I mean, again, that's it's... Uh, Exactly, Gildalaban. At least he'll make it to Moria, right? Look at the bright side. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, right, so Abelard, um, do any of the hobbits know what Astari are? Um, I, you know, let's, let's see what we can figure out from that. Um, no. We'll get to this eventually, but as it will be some time, let me remember ahead with you here. Um, it's funny, this was in the passage I talked with Alan Sisto about on the Prancing Pony podcast when I was co-hosting with him uh, a, a year ago now. Um, remember, Pippin's gonna ha Pippin is going to have that moment when he and Gandalf are walking into the throne room in Minas Tirith. And Pippin all of a sudden starts asking, Whoa, what is Gandalf? What can he do? Where is he from? How long has he been around? Um, Pippin clearly does not get who and what Gandalf is. Right? Um, he, that will be explicit later on. How much do any of them understand? I don't know. I'll do you one better. How much does Gandalf understand. I'm not even 100% sure. Um, I am minded of Gandalf's comment that against some powers he has not been tested yet. Even Gandalf doesn't really know what he can do. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Maureen, the throne room scene is technically only a few weeks away. True. Well, a couple months. A couple months. Um, we, we got the Lothlorian time right in between. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, does Gandalf know he's a Maya? I don't. Probably. But it's complicated. I'm not convinced that Gandalf retains intimate memories of Valinor. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Emily, Saruman is real unclear to Tolkien at this point of the narrative when he's, when Tolkien was originally writing it, yeah. Um, anyway, the point is, think about, um, 
let's. I would encourage you not to make any assumptions. That's all. Um, it is really, really easy for us to. It's really easy for readers, and this happens a lot, um, because Tolkien gives us so much information. Um, whether it's here, you know, through the Lord of the Rings or in the appendices or in unfinished tales, you know, we see Tolkien thinking and 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 doing backstory and doing world building and giving us more, inf- you know, right thinking through more information and stuff, um, which often Christopher provides to us. Um, so we know all this stuff, right? We have all this stuff. Um, Pippin doesn't. Sam doesn't yet, right? Sam will get a lot of it, but he doesn't have it yet. Um, we have to remember what people what is in the range of their knowledge, right? This is what um, Bjorning, I saw you were referring to, how Alan Sisto likes to talk about the epistemic regime. That's a, that's a droughtism. Um, it's uh, Mike Drought's expression. Um, uh, and it's very important to remember the epistemic regime means the frame of knowledge of the individual characters. And so specifically, like from within what epistemic regime um, is the like narr- is sort of the point of view of the story. Um, and Mike Drought's argument where he talks about the epistemic regime is how Tolkien almost always chooses uh, to frame his story within the epistemic regime of the people who are most clueless, right? Whoever, who, 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 whosoever's knowledge is least in an encounter is usually the point of view character uh, of that, uh, of that incident. Um, but, um, but yeah, so it's not only that we have to remember the epistemic regime of the narration in that way. We do need to remember, we need to try to imagine ourselves within the scope of knowledge of the individual characters. And again, even of Gandalf himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, Leaf of Starlight, you are so right. The Lord of the Rings through the perspective of Aragorn would be very different and fascinating. It certainly would. It certainly would. Yes, yes. And yes, Geiger, you're right. Tolkien answered a lot of these questions by closely examining the text, same as his readers. 100%. 100%. Um, anyway, point is, let's try not to make assumptions and instead, you know, about what people probably know or, you know, or and, and instead look to see. Um, you know, Geiger, exactly as you're suggesting there, uh, or as I think you're suggesting anyway, Let's do what Tolkien himself did, right? Which is to pay close attention to the narrative and sort of piece things together from there, as we're as we're working to do. Um, but um, yeah, um, yes. Um, anyway, okay. So back to Sam's comment: family history. That's where we were. Okay, so we've got these two different family histories: the Took family history and the sort of extended Gamgean, the extended, um, you know, the um, uh, young cousins and protégés of Bilbo family history, right, in The Hobbit here, and the way that Sam is processing. Um, And I do think, I agree with Bob, that it's a combination of things. It's him processing what he's learned from Mr. Bilbo's stories, um, and what he's learned is, A, Gandalf is killable, but B... Whatever may be in store for old Gandalf, it's probably not a wolf's belly. That's been proven once already. Sam's prepared to wager that it will be proven again this evening. And P.S. 
Aragorn's gloomy prophecy of just a few minutes ago probably suggests that, uh, um, or, you know, a few hours ago, however long it's been. No, it's just a few minutes now. Um, uh, also suggests that, uh, it, well, at least it's, uh, would seems to make it a safer wager. Um, at the, at the, uh, at the very least. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, okay, I think that's it. Um, I wanted to... Okay, all right. I'm going to try to get out the one last thing that I'm thinking about here. And that is... We were talking before about the obvious connections between this whole section and The Hobbit, right? Um, and this is, we are getting, we get, we have to keep in mind this cue that we get here as we move into the scene that comes next. We've been reminded that Sam is himself remembering the wolf and wizard scene from The Hobbit. That, that should be in our heads. I think that it's important that that should be in our heads. Um, this is not just an accidental parallel. This is not just Tolkien duplicating stuff, right? Um, let's be thinking about the wargs in The Hobbit and the encounter that we're going to be seeing here and do some comparison and contrast. Juxtapose them as Sam is juxtaposing them here, and as is kind of prompting us um, to uh, to do that. <laughs> oh man, Farmerians uh, finding a loophole in the perverse reassurance. Um, pointing out that Aragorn said, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware. So what you're saying is getting eaten by wolves uh, would be to find a loophole there, right? Um if you get eaten by wolves first, you don't have to worry actually about it. You know, uh, that's that's one way around the uh, uh, gates of Moria problem. <laughs> right. Um, I um, I, I, I doubt it. But I, technically, technically, you're right. Um, Aragorn should have framed that maybe a little bit better. Right. Uh, when when would have been better? When you pass the doors of Moria, beware. Oh well. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, yeah, Bjarne Sonner, I agree. There is a kind of implication there of, you know, if you don't pass the gates of Moria, you don't have to beware. Um, but then again, if you're already in a wolf's belly, then yeah, pressure's off at that point, right? I suppose. <laughs> but anyway, okay. Anyway, all right. So all I'm saying is, as we move forward, we will keep in mind the um, the juxtaposition of the Hobbit scene and the Lord of the Rings scene that is to come here as we uh, um, uh, and we'll see what we see when we move forward um, <laughs> alright um, thanks everybody uh, so I'm not going to be available next week um, we'll be off next week next week big week um, so I'm not going to be doing uh, almost any broadcast next week um, but should be back the week after that that'll be so the week after um, uh, today is what the fifth, uh, so we'll, we'll be on the nineteenth, uh, uh, um, and that'll be the week of um, uh, the week of Cascade Moot and uh, Bilbo's birthday and all kinds of things. So um, we will um, 
we'll be back that week and I will uh, I will look forward to that um, field trip time now so for uh, those of you who are joining us we'll get ready for the field trip everybody else uh, have a good evening and I'll see you guys in two weeks how are you Valori I'm doing fine good, good to see everybody yes yes it's on deed Okay, so back to Tharbad this evening. We um, we kind of did another big picture scan last week of Tharbad. Mm -hmm. Today yeah. we're going to kind of wander about and uh, see if we can see if we can't confirm some of our, some of our hypotheses from last week. We're going to get in the weeds. That's it. All right. Oh, did you come port over, or were you logging in and logging out again? I'm coming back in. Oh, yep. I'll be there. Yeah, in a okay. Minute. I think everyone else took off in anticipation. No worries. I will. I will join y'all in a second at the uh, customs house, or at least that's my theory. It's a good theory. Okay. Off we go. Okay, here we are in what they call the stone crop encampment on the site of what was undoubtedly a customs house back in the day. <laughs> All right. Get your little star on you. There we go. There we go. Excellent. All right, so let's tour around the north side the north bank of Tharbad alright so we're coming and we've got some fairly intimidating walls yeah so one of the questions that we had that we want to look for the number one question of today's archaeological investigation is can we see evidence of anything that would suggest that it dates all the way back to the Numenorean period? Oh, yes. I think our first uh, idea might have been from the, the sort of uh, Russian domes. On right, yeah, the domes. Oh. Yeah. Yep. Um... This is already a little bit interesting right here. Might as well dismount. Mm -hmm. I don't think I need horses much tonight. Um, this is already interesting. So this is kind of like a, you know, conceptually, this is kind of like one of the gazebos, but it's not, it's weird with these like... Um, yeah, it's still standing. Yeah, these like gothic arches. I mean, it's not a gazebo. 
It's like these uh, arches that connect yeah. over this fountain. It's a little different. It's vaults, it's vaults that aren't vaulting anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, again, it's gazebo-esque in its general sort of purpose, but um, yeah, it's a little unusual. Um, well, it also begs the question of how far up did that water go? Yes. Well, okay. And we also have to remember, like, if we're looking for Numenorian stuff, Numenorian stuff is going to be like 5,000 years old or something. But still, but like Atlantean high tech kind of thing. True. There is reason to believe that it could survive for that reason. Yeah. Huh. Notice the difference in or, stone here. This dark um, brown stone. Yeah, it, Definitely, I can't tell if it's because it's possibly been quarried from local rock or something else. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the main sort of lighter beige stone that we see all around is a little bit more mm -hmm. typical of the Arnorian constructions that we've seen mm -hmm. for ever so long. Yeah. Um, but that's not what's readily available around here. Right, yeah. So is this brown perhaps a later construction, which would have been locally quarried? Or or maybe they were in a pinch or couldn't make the big trek to wherever they quarried yeah. the original rock from. Okay, you know what would be a really interesting... I won't go so far as to call it a smoking, an architectural smoking gun, but what would be really, really interesting to see? What? A downward-pointing Numenorean star. Oh, Right? Big old because, star Bethlehem one. Yeah, the, exactly. Because the Cardolan stuff has all been upward pointing stars. Mm. Mm. Um, but the downward pointing star is clearly the old Numenorean thing, as was preserved in Anumines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not I'm seeing not, much so, of any detail. No, not much. So uh, this kind of building, this jumble down building, is very similar to what we've seen in lots of other places. Uh, yeah. I'm liking the um, Oyelare um, carving up on the side of the mm -hmm. wall. We're seeing a bunch of that, a little more than I remember seeing elsewhere. But oh uh, yeah, the only thing that I'm seeing that really, the only thing I've been seeing so far that really yeah. stands out, stands out just as being different from the other stuff that we've been seeing in other Arnorian buildings down here um, in Cardolan is that brown stone and that weird arched quasi-gazebo thing. Yeah. Um, we should see if we could find a door somewhere. That's generally where they like to stick their stars. Very true. All right. Well, let's go downstairs if I were... Like, oh, I, I was about to run right off. I've been playing Palia too long. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I was gonna. Yeah, I was Lighter. looking for my uh, my my little grifflet burglar skill for jumping off cliffs, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, so we got wow, stars. Look at these columns. Yeah. The heck. What in the heck diddly ding dong crap? Those stars all look 
Yeah, there are a lot of stars. These are all like sideways stars. These, the, yeah, those are these Arnorian. are like the stars we see on the on the mm-hmm. the shield, the that we've seen on the shield of, yeah, um, Gilgalad. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And we've seen them a bunch of places. More that Oyelare, um inscription. It's all over the place here, but <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily. Yeah, I'm oh like there's lots more leaf detail like all over here too. It's just Yes. It almost looks like teeth when it's in rows like that. Yes, that's true. Okay. It's just not pareidolia there. Alright. Most oh, of I'm this lost. I think is Arnorian. Again, as you would expect, because by the time the Arnorians came to build down here, I mean, they settled up in Anuminus first. This is the extreme southern edge of the Arnorian domain, mm-hmm. even at the you know the height of Arnor's power. So yeah. you've got to think that the Arnorian city of Tharbad didn't really get its start until well into the Third Age, right? Uh-huh. Um, so there would have been a Numenorian ruin here, which would probably have been a ruin at least for centuries, if not for a millennium, Um, you know, by the time they came down here to build. So they would have, um, they would have been building a great deal from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, you can see these columns kind of aren't even, you know being used for that anymore. They're just sort of been, things have been stuck into them. Those like, skinny look at, look columns, this, though. This angle, this like this isn't even the proper angle for this column over here, but it's like we had to do something with it. Hmm. It, it definitely hmm. seems like a lost arc that was sort of ham-fistedly repaired. Right. So, I mean, just looking where I'm looking, which is to the, what, southeast from here. I'm looking across the river at the tower. I think that's across the river that I'm looking. Um, Uh, Yeah, west side. Yes, that is across the river I'm looking. Um, So that tower looks newer, looks clearly like Cartilingen there. Mm Mm-hmm. And so probably this old stonework that we're seeing with all of the leaves that look like teeth and the oyelare and huge wreaths around, is that's probably Arnorian, old Arnorian. So we, I mean, you can see from the, the weathering of the stone itself that the, again, the stone like that tower across the way just looks newer than the stone of these big columns that are right next to us here. Yeah. Which are more aged and corroded. And so, but that doesn't, I think, make them Numenorean. I think that's still, so if we're counting back, right, we've got the the oldest layer, you know, the first layer, which is the Numenorean layer, and the second layer, which is Old Arnor, and the third layer, which is Cardolan, on top of that. And then, of course, the fourth layer is like the Orc camp. Uh, yeah. You know the, the the recent stuff, um, or like the stone walls up by the 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 roads to the north of here. Um, yeah. 
but um, I don't think there's any reason to connect these, even though these look quite old. I mean, the Arnorian ruins would still be three, you know, three thousand, two thousand, you know, between two and three thousand years old. Um, the fact we're not seeing the usual star motif that we normally would see is definitely suspicious. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, so like we got the stars, but like that—that that sort of the stars, okay. like see see the stars up above these, like what are they? Doors or windows? I'm not quite sure what they. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what these things those are. Those are like the mirror mirror. Those are the mirror mirror stars or Gilgalad she stars. Yeah, it's not one that any sort of particular. There's no star fan over here. No, but it's um, yeah, it, it's it's more like. Notice it doesn't, even with the upward-pointing stars, and these are clearly up, upward-pointed stars, I think, um, at least on the top ones. We've seen this pattern before around the other um, Arnorian and Cartilingian things, and it no longer has the tail, the star, the stars, because again, with the, 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 the one long extended arm, um, mm -hmm. which is the Numenorian star, right? Shining down to show the way to Numenor, which, you know, the, the, the downward point of the star, which forms the mast of the ships, right? In the Enuminous iconography, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is such a beautiful icon. I just love that image there. Um, but um, it's, th this is just a pattern. This is just stars, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it's still a specific number of stars. It's still a constellation of seven stars. Um, so it's Numenorean still in that sense, seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. But it's, um, but it's no longer, it no longer has the symbolic significance of the Numenorean guidance star, right? Um, it's almost like there's some sort of fan or erasure happening. Well, I, not necessarily fan. I mean, the Fanorian star is different in that it's eight, points but um yeah, but no suppose, it's it's but... just that the 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 Numenorean traditions it's like the star has remained a, an, a symbol an important symbol but it seems mm -hmm. to no longer have the cultural freight and significance that it used to have yeah yeah um now here's the thing that I'm interested in let's go to these piers uh yeah because if there's one thing here that we saw from the bridge Ooh. up there that oh, I would guess faces. might be oh yeah we can see all the way down at the bottom can't we yeah there's the plinth yeah wow look at the base of that it's like a clover leaf it's all rounded see on I would have no. octagonal base See, this doesn't make it look like intentional piers, then. These look like a colonnade that sank. It does look like a colonnade. And there's nothing on them. There's lots of moss. Some kind of limpet. There's also no really ah there's oyelire around the base ah yep the vine yep this is oh that's just cracked apart <laughs> look like pieta 
It's just cracked stone. Yeah. The, the water moving doesn't help. No, and our shadows are distracting. Yeah. Like Superman flying. Hmm. But if it is a colonnade. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen any historical piers where they use stone columns, though. They usually use wood because it's cheap, it's there, and it's easily replaced, and it doesn't do so much damage to the ships that it's going right. to, you know, get you in trouble. All right. Well, and the city has obviously sunk. I mean, look at this over here. Look at this tower. Yeah. Um, icon right here at the surface. I want to see if I can... Right, see beyond the reflection and see the actual stuff under the water. Yeah. Something is rotten in the state of Tarbad. So, the level of the water here is higher. I'm like, here floating in the star. middle. Huh? Well, there's our star right there. Where? You were right in front. It was right in front of you. I was swimming to where you were. Over here? Well, yeah, yeah, that's the star that's above the tower. But that's the tower, the Car Car yeah, that, yeah. That's the Cartilingian Tower, yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's the first one we've seen. It is the first Cartilingian Tower we've seen over here. Um, uh -huh. So this clearly got a um, this clearly got a facelift. And a bath. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, so I'm floating here in the midst of the stream, trying to imagine trying to imagine what the channel would have been so that it would have been it could have been much deeper than this and yet the water level be lower right the the base of the stream would have been higher as yeah. the, the the floor of the river is is higher up than it was and or, yeah the river has spread out because of the damming action of the fallen rocks downstream there right uh, yeah we can we can see that in action from all the fog drifting over right so the water level is higher though the channel is also shallower mm -hmm. but if we assume that the old river was between this is still it's a narrow channel for ships but it still could definitely be again the bridge is a little bit low but again it would have been less low in the old days if the riverbed were had been lower the other, the other one is possibly this was a raised bank at one point which then collapsed in on itself mm -hmm. so like, uh, what do we think are the odds that these pillars or columns are Numenorean. Do we think oh. that's possible? It's conceivable. I mean, so the rock on them looks a little different mm -hmm. from the stone that we see. I'm trying to find, see if we can find three clear examples. Where's my tower? I was like, okay. That's getting dark, and that's not helping us. Um, oh yeah, probably just it as well because it's getting late. Um, 
Hang on. Let me come down here south. Excuse me. Bless you. That taught me totally off guard. Okay. So here we've got these walls. Aha. Uh -huh. More star pattern. Which I think are older. Yeah, I, I feel like the star pattern is older. Um, these columns with the bands around it and like, what is this, rebar? Yeah, it might be rebar. You can see how the facade has come off the, has worn away from these columns and you can see like the raw rock beneath. Yeah, and they're definitely like, you can see they, they didn't move much where they fell or sank into whatever, but it, the base is definitely not happy. I don't know. My, my theory is that the riverbank got undercut by the water current, so you had this sort of big shelf that was uh, mm -hmm. slowly being eroded from the inside until it was like a kinder egg and it just collapsed. Perhaps so. Yeah, well, let's take these columns as a uh, at least uh, candidates the best candidates that we've seen for okay. actual Numenorean work here. Mm -hmm. If they're actually columns and not piers, what were they for? Was this always a port back then? Or was this just sort of a convenient place by the river? Almost has to have been a port. Oh, you can... You can kind of see it from above. It does stick out like a harbor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know that this was a major navigable river. We don't know exactly how far up the Great Flood they went. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible these pillars were the bottom of something and like the top was meant to be like a like a maybe a wood or, or a lighter lighter stone like it was supposed to be a big um, pier right or something like that like you were never meant to go underneath it and in between the columns well that's the, the the thing that makes me think that is how plain these columns are yeah there's no decorative work of any kind right yeah um there's I mean the there's what like could be rebar, right? But um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's there's nothing fancy on them. So they they quite likely were support pillars for. Uh, to um, make it out of stone and this shout of this smaller river, that's that's hubris there. Well, you know, Numenorean, yep. we kind of track. Yeah, um, I suppose. Okay. Well, let's... All right, so next time we will... Um... Whoa, look at the moon. Holy cow. Um... Oh, yeah. Next time we will look over... We'll continue over to, this, to the... We were on the north side. This time we'll continue over to the south side. Oh, man, look at the piers. Look at the, the columns on, on the mini-map. That's, yeah, that's what I meant from above. Sorry. I yeah. Said that badly. Yeah, it's like uh, they're like parking spaces. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are like Park. That looks much more like they were clearly peers that stuck out. Yeah. I just questioned their choice of material. Right. Well, you know, you're Numenorians. You make it to last. Um, Until it yeah. doesn't. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll explore the southern part next time, and we'll look particularly at um, the... I, 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 I want to look at more of those domey buildings and see oh, what we I can see there. I hope we can coincide at least one of them. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. And if we have time, we'll see what we can see in the fortress on that central island there, too. Mm-hmm. And in particular, see what kind of evidence we can find to see whether or not that island was an island or whether it's only become an island since the flooding of the river. But, mm-hmm. um, all right, cool. Well, good start. Good start. Yep. I think the, I think our, I think our peers in the peers, we may have found them. And then with that, we'll look, we'll, we'll know a little bit more what to look for to see if we can find something matching. That might be new. Chapter heading. Peers with our peers. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so having done peer review, I guess you could say, we're... Oh, no! God, Corey. Come on! Come on. That was... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. See y'all in a fortnight. (laughs) We'll see you guys in a fortnight. Just for that... In a fortnight's talk like a pirate day, I expect Discord to act accordingly. There we go. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. Bye now. Bye.